This is a podcast by One Life Christian Church in Baldwin, New York. We pray that the following podcast would encourage you, build you up in the gospel, and lead you closer to Jesus. We remind you that these are simply tools to help you in your walk and ask that you still look for a local church to attend and serve in. Welcome to the living room. Today we begin a new series called Ruth, and the subtitle is The Providence of God. There's no fancy title for today's sermon except that it's chapter one. For the next four weeks, we're going to hit the book of Ruth. How many of you know the book of Ruth? Just raise your hand. Okay. The book of Ruth. And some of you may know the book of Ruth for its value of relationship. All the Ruths in the room want to find their Boaz. And all the Boazes in the room want to find their Ruths. But I want to bring us into this sermon so that we are not just looking at this story for its relational value as much as we're looking at it from the perspective of us in the midst of this story. So this is a twofold story. This is someone's real story of how God provided for them and for a people, but also how we find ourselves in this story. If you'll open up your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1, we're going to start right from verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible right under your seat or under the seat in front of you. Uh, if we can get some extra Bibles, if anybody has one, I think we need some Bibles up here also. Um, and we're going to go with Ruth chapter 1. Ruth is in the Old Testament. And while you look that up, can somebody answer this question? How many books of the Bible are named after a woman? Two. Okay, two. And how many books of the Bible that are named after women are about Jewish women? Who said that? Okay, okay, Alicia. Okay, reading your Bible. We're going to see why that's the case now. And this is part of the beauty of this story. Ruth was not a Jewish woman. And we're going to get to that in just a second here. So let's start reading. I'm going to start reading from verse 1 to 5. And if you don't have a Bible, friends, you're welcome to take that Bible that you just grabbed from the seat in front of you, grab it, take a pen, write up into that Bible, and let's learn a little bit today. Let's read in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife had two sons. So now we know we have... The time of the judges, famine in the land, a man from Bethlehem in Judah going to a country named Moab. He has a wife and he has two sons. Verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived, they lived there about ten years, and both Malan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. These are only five verses, and so much here has happened. Let's start by going to when this is taking place. Verse 1 says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. So there was roughly a time of 400 years 
where the book of Judges takes place. Israel had no ruler. There was no government. It was pretty much every man for himself. There was no ruler or governing body over the people of Israel. And what happened during this time? And we're not sure when this story, the story of Ruth, took place, but scholars believe it happened probably around the 10th chapter of the book of Judges, which is the book right before Ruth. So they are sequential. It's judges and then Ruth. So you may ask yourself, right, because we may remember Samson to be one of the judges, right? But why did Israel need judges? See, because there was no government during this time and it was a free-for-all, you can imagine when you give humans, men and women, freedom to not be ruled, what would happen? Anarchy. Chaos. And yes, this was the people of Israel, so they had a God, but in their humanity, they found themselves engulfed in sin. Sinful nature being clear out, and what would happen? God would allow oppressors to come into their land, attack them, oppress them, hurt them, and so what would happen? Israel would stand and say, Lord, send us help. And for every time that happened, God would raise up a judge. Okay. The problem is that for 400 years, this kept happening. And let me bring us into the story right here. How many times of us, and I think I said this last week, remember how many, time of, how many times have some of us come to God and said, Lord, if you would deliver me from this situation, I promise I will give you all of my life. I promise you this, 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 and that. And the truth is that as soon as God resolves our issue, we're right back into our immorality or our unfaithfulness. And the same thing happens with Israel. Once God sends a judge, he sends a deliverer and a protector and a savior from their oppressors. And the people go right back into their motions of being rebellious against God. So again, this is happening around that 10th chapter of Judges when we see this man taking his family out of Bethlehem. And sorry, they would rebel. They would get attacked, ask God for protection. A judge is raised. They would go back into their nonsense. But where also is this taking place? Verse 1 also tells us that this man doesn't give us a name yet. He said this man is from Bethlehem, a Jew taking his family to Moab. And the Moabites were not Jewish people. That's important here. Bethlehem in Judah, which Judah I guess would be like the county, if you will, and the city is Bethlehem. In Judah, they were Jews. It was Israel residing in Judah. In Bethlehem, he was taking his family from the safety and the security of Bethlehem into Moabite territory. Why is this key for us here? This was an immigrant. And why was he leaving? He was leaving because it says that there was severe famine in the land. Most of us in this room, if not all of us, won't ever know famine in our lifetime. And we won't know famine in our land. In our country, they'll steal it from another country before we run out of bread. We say sometimes that we're starving if we haven't eaten for two hours. And I hate that about some of my coworkers. Oh, I'm starving. We don't know what starvation is. 
So here we are reading this story about a loving husband and a loving father who's making a decision. I'm going to try to drill this into your mind. He is making a decision to leave his comfort and his safety of what he knows because there is no food. I want you to feel the weight of this, especially if for some of us we feel like when people invade our territory, the gospel, the word of God speaks often about sojourners. Immigrants that come into land that is not theirs because they're in need of safety or food. And the response of God's people is an invitation to be kind. Kind. Some of you want to make this political in your mind. It's not political. It's not political. I'm giving you the word of God. He is fighting for the life of his family. And the expectation is that the Moabites, who are enemies of the Israelites, would receive them. And grant them bread. Because God's land doesn't have bread, but the Moabite land does have bread. These were immigrants. They were migrating for this in search of food. And also safety, right? If you have a land that is in famine, there's probably a lot of unsafe spaces in a city with a lot of people that have need. People are dying. Starvation is overwhelming in the city of Bethlehem. Moab was a city that was a stark contrast, however, to Bethlehem. Moab, where do they come from? The Moabites. Moab began when in Genesis chapter 10, Lot, if you remember Lot and his wife who turned into a pillar of salt, Lot had an incestuous relationship with his daughter. And the product of that relationship were the Moabite people. And what were the Moabite people known for? They were known for a pagan culture. They were, known, they were known for idolatry and also about the Moabites, specifically the women. The women were known to carry themselves in a promiscuous way. But in their promiscuity, they would use it to entice Jewish men out of Israel, out of the people of Israel, out of their cultures into their own. And then they would engulf them in their own cultures. So this husband is taking his family from Bethlehem into Moab. And funny enough, the word Bethlehem means house of bread, which is ironic because at this time, in the house of bread, there is no bread. That's one. Taking them to a city that is known to hate Jews. And the ultimate success for a Moabite woman was to be able to pull men out of the Israeli culture, the Jewish culture, into their own pagan culture. Verse 2, it says, the name of the man, now, now we get to meet him. His name was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So they set up camp and started a new life in this unknown city. This man's name was Elimelech, and Elimelech means... God is king. Again, another irony. The first person we meet in this book of Ruth, his name is Elimelech. God is king. Ironic because at the time, there was no king. So right in the beginning of the story, verse 2, we find that in a space where there is no ruler, or regardless of who the ruler and government of our land is, there is always a king. He and his wife, Naomi, they have their sons also, Malin and Killian, two boys. Verses 3 to 5, we'll find that the author writes 
verses 3 to 5 in a very distinct way, which I would refer to if you're someone who is musical. Any musicians in the room? Try out for the, uh, for the worship team. Praise the Lord. But there is like a, a, there's a mode of music if you know how to read music. And it's a staccato where if you hold a note, that when you're holding a note, it, it's sustained, right? And when it's sustained, you just hear, uh, if it's staccato, it's, Okay, so the way that he is now writing is in a staccato fashion. Why? Because here we're building up a, a hero father and a hero husband looking to protect for his family, and all of a sudden he's dead. Verse 3. What does it say? Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. Boom. There's no emotion. There's no, oh my God, he was eaten by a lion. Like, no, it's, he's dead. We don't know how he died. That's not the point of the story. And she was left with her two sons. So here, the story is building up, and then it comes crashing down. A mother is left widowed with two sons. But wait, like, she'll be okay. These men will, these boys will grow up to be men and have their own families, and they're going to provide for their mom, right? Well, the story starts taking another turn. That's the first curse on her life. She becomes a widow. The second is that her sons, verse 4, these, meaning her sons, they took Moabite wives. What a success for a mother, a Jewish mother at that. Because as a Jewish mother, she would long for her sons to marry Jewish women of their culture, to carry on their name in the fashion that they know. But no, the Moabite women have succeeded over her two sons. So now she, it's possible that she carries this shame about her sons also now turning away from their Jewish culture. So that's the second thing that happens to this woman. And their names were Orpah, the wives, Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. They lived in Moab about 10 years. And then boom again, verse 5. And both Malan and Kilian died. The two last sources of provision for this woman we're now gone. You know, maybe it's hard for us to understand what she's experiencing. But when all of your provision disappears, and we don't know how much time went between Malin and Killian and them dying. Maybe they died at the same time. Maybe they died at different times. The point is that every source of provision for this woman was gone. Okay. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband and is left dragging along two Moabite women. What a joy. Let's continue reading. Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 to 14. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to, your, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back. My daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. 
If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi hears that God has now brought bread back to his house of bread. There is now food. He has blessed his people once more because God is faithful. He has blessed his people. They are no longer in famine. And so now that she is a woman left alone, she says, let me go back home. Let me go back home and let me find provision there. But she realizes that she has these two women that are additional mouths to provide for. And also they are women that aren't Jewish. So what does she say? She says, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me, referring to her children. These women were young. They had the opportunity to go and find other husbands and continue on their line. They don't have children. So imagine the curse that happens here to on top of having lost your husband, you also don't have children. There's also something that is called the leveret marriage that we learn about in the book of Deuteronomy, which is a law among the Jewish people. If your brother's wife is left widowed, meaning that your brother dies, it is your duty, not your um, right to, but your duty to marry your sister-in-law for the sake of her provision. I know that sounds kind of crazy, for our culture, but this is how they provide it. And it is something we have to give to our Jewish brothers and sisters is that they do well to protect one another. You have to give it to them. Even today in their culture, they look after one another so much so that it is built into their Mosaic law. So here is your widowed sister-in-law. It is your duty to marry her for the sake of her provision. But guess what? Orpah and Ruth don't have someone else that will marry them, but they do have their youth. But what doesn't Naomi have? Naomi is an older woman. She's saying, why? She gives two convincing reasons for them to go back home. She says, I don't have any more sons to give you. Don't be fools. Don't miss an opportunity to go back to your moms and remarry for the sake of your provision. That's one. And second, she says, I'm old. I'm too old to have a husband. And even if I were to have a husband tonight and get pregnant tonight, one, how does she know it's a boy? Two, if I were to have sons, she asks, would you wait for them to be old enough to marry? So by that time, these women are not holding their age. They're getting older. And the older they're getting, their opportunities for provision are less and less. But it says then they cried together once more. Orpah then decides, you know what? This old lady is convincing. I'm going to go ahead and kiss her. I did what I said I was going to do. She denied it. I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go. So she kisses her and decides to leave. But Ruth stays. Like, if we're just talking about just common sense, this doesn't make sense. Ruth Chapter 1, verse 15 to 18. Let's keep reading. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. 
But Ruth said, and listen to this. Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more. Also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Can we just say in our hearts the word loyalty? Loyalty. See, in our culture, we, I feel like we're more used to seeing a mother-in-law with a daughter-in-law at odds. More of an orpa, right? Kind of saying, no, I'll stay, right? Hoping that mother-in-law will release us. But two times Ruth had an opportunity to leave her mother-in-law. And two times she says, I'm going to stay. Not only does she say that, but what she says to her mother-in-law are really words that you and I have heard at weddings. Till death do us part. I've never heard this said to a mother-in-law or a father-in-law. Let me read that to you again. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. That's important. Why? Because she's not a Jew. She says, I am willing, not for her husband, but her mother-in-law. I'm willing to abandon my pagan culture, and I will become a Jew with you and dwell among your people, not only to be with them. She said, your people shall be my people and your God, capital G, my God. Furthermore, where you die, I will also die. Can you imagine this kind of covenant? It's no longer a promise. It's a covenant she's making with her mother-in-law. And we don't know what God is to bring to her later. But even without her with the, without, with the unknown, she makes this decision to stick by her mother-in-law. She makes the Jews her people, their word her word. And I love Naomi's response to this. After this loving daughter-in-law says, I will stick by your side, it says that Naomi said nothing. She saw how determined she was. It says that she got up. And they continued and said no more. And that brings us to verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred. Can you picture this? The whole town was stirred because of them. And then women said, is this Naomi? That's verse 19. I'll stop there for a second. So here, remember that years prior... Elimelech had made a decision to abandon his people and move into a city with people that were unlike them. And now a single and widowed Ruth is returning to the city. And as always, there's somebody to talk, right? In, in the spaces of our brokenness, there's, all one, there's always somebody to have something to say about our brokenness. And just like that, there were these Jewish women seeing Ruth coming back into the city. And what did they ask? They said, is this Naomi? And this is what she responds to shut them down. Verse 20, she said, she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. 
for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. That's ironic, verse 21, because the truth is she literally didn't leave full. But she was, because she had her husband, and she had her children. For her satisfaction, she had everything she needed. She had her Almighty, she had her husband, and she had her children. And now she's returning, she says, with nothing. But let me go back. Naomi had shame in her. As she's walking back to Bethlehem, she knows that years back, they abandoned their people. And they abandoned the presence of their God. She left when there was famine, but of course, now she's returning because there's feasting. So many people in the city might have looked at her like, well, now, of course, now you come back. When things were rough, you didn't ride this out with us. Sometimes we don't know other people's stories. That's the problem with gossip. It's easy to gossip if you have no information. When you find that many times in spaces of gossip, we'll be moved to be compassionate because of what people are going through. But this is what people are saying. But to shut them down, she says, change my name. In her shame, she changes her name. Naomi means pleasant or gentle. But now she wants to be called Mara, which means bitter. She goes in her state, in her situation, she goes from pleasant and gentle to being bitter. But the importance of all of this chapter, I find in verse 20. After she changes her name in front of these women, she also says, For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And it's not the bitter. We all know bitterness. We all have experience with some type of bitterness. But there's something about this point of the story that reminds me of Job. And a lot of us have experienced situations in our lives where we're like, Oh, this is what Job must have felt. You have no idea what Job felt. I want to assure you of that. Like, Job felt the weight of what he thought was abandonment by God in a way that we never will experience. And yet, Job starts relating to this story of Ruth through Naomi at the same time. This feeling of abandonment, but still the ability to look to God and say, you are almighty. This is the weight of this story. So we can look at Ruth chapter 1 and be like, wow, this is going to be a terrible story. And maybe some of you, if you're readers, you're like, what happens in, what happens in chapter 4, right? Like, I know she gets married. Like, can we get to the nice part of the movie? But I want us to sit in chapter 1. Because chapter 1 is setting the scene for God's beautiful providence. And in order us, for us to sometimes see the beauty of God's providence, we have to realize how bad the situation is. Amidst her pain, she calls to him Almighty, which is also translated in the original as El Shaddai. El Shaddai means Almighty. It means all-powerful. It means the great. It means the mighty. It means the omnipotent. The all-able, Naomi didn't neglect God's power even in her pain. Similarly, Job looks to El Shaddai by name and he speaks to him as El Shaddai over 35 times in the book of Job. They knew pain. 
They knew crushing. Life was engulfing them in their own situation, but they never forgot the Almighty God. You see why I'm sitting in this right now? I know that some of you are sinking in your pain, in your struggles, in your marriage, in your singleness, in your addictions, in your, in your unbelief. But none of these things take away from the greatness and the power of God. It's an invitation for us to remove ourselves as God over our lives. I know some of you are going through the hardest seasons of your lives. But as messy as some of your lives feel in this season, God has never lost power and he has never lost control. And when you struggle, when you struggle with all these things and you come to the point where you maybe rather not be alive anymore, God continues being good. Let me invite you into a very personal space of mine. There was a season of my life where I would sit in my bed and I said, this world would be better off if I wasn't in it. I know some of you have felt that before. And I was by myself. I wasn't with somebody else longing for their pity. It was me truly asking myself, would the world not be better if I wasn't in it anymore? And I know what I was going through. And I was in one of those moments. I'm not going to equate it to, to Naomi. But it was my own Naomi moment. My own moment like Job. Where I looked to God and I said, how could a God so good let me go through what I'm going through right now? Well, the truth is that despite our brokenness and our pain, God is still good. We said last week that Jesus is supreme. God is almighty is what we're saying today. He is El Shaddai. David Platt says this. He says, in his sovereign design, listen, God ordains sorrowful tragedy to set the stage for surprising triumph. Let me read that again. In his sovereign design, mean, sovereign meaning he is mighty over all, God ordains first sorrowful tragedy. What does that mean? Everything that has happened to you that's bad in your life, God allowed. Wait, hold on. I thought God was good. Good all the time. Everything that has troubled you, the sickness in your body, the abuse in your life is something that God allowed. How about that one? I want you to sit there on purpose because we all know struggle. And God signed off on your struggle. That hits. That hits. But, but, but wait, but I've trusted in him. I've trusted in him. And this is the question that Naomi has by wanting to change her name to Mara. God has acted bitterly against me. Job, that God has been bitter against him. 
and yet they look to him as the almighty God. So when you ask yourself the question, how could a good God allow bad things to happen to people? We say good people, but I'm going to erase that because we know what we, we know about good now, right? No one's good. But how could a good God allow catastrophe unto our world? How could a good God allow these babies in Tennessee to be shot down? He's mighty. We won't understand everything that God allows. And yet we still need to look at him as El Shaddai. All of your problems though, all of your problems have an expiration date. But your God does not. Can God be good in the midst of your pain? Yes. It's not can he. He is good. Everything about him is good. And think about your own salvation story. Where you were, maybe not in the physical, maybe not with things around you, but where you were in here when he pulled you out of your hole. So I came from sitting on the edge of my bed saying, Lord, this world is better off without me. This is before I had my wife, before I had my children, and before I stood up here to preach his gospel to you. And it's testimony. Because even in the depth of those spaces where we say, God, I don't know how, I'm, I don't know how you're going to get me out of this one. Is where he works his miracle to make his name greater. Consider your own life, how far you've come. Consider Naomi. I, I don't want to get ahead of us, ourselves, in this story. But over the next couple of weeks, you're going to see what God's providence looks like in the life of Ruth and even Naomi. Next week, right off the bat, you see exactly what happens. Because at the end of this chapter, it says, and it speaks about the barley field. Verse 22, it ends. I'm going to read the whole verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And let me give you a sneak peek into the next few weeks. That barley is going to tell a huge story about God's providence. Let me be your brother for a second and your shepherd. <clears throat> Some of you are sitting in this room right now and you can close your eyes. I'm wrapping up. Some of you are sitting in this room right now and you are in despair you feel abandonment. The people who you love maybe have left you. The people who you've longed to be close to you are no longer around. Maybe you live with somebody that causes you severe pain. Maybe your children are lost out in the world. Maybe you've lost your job and you don't know where your harvest is going to come from tomorrow. Though God has ordained all of that over your life, he hasn't caused it. There's a big distinction, friends, between allowing and creating. He hasn't created sin and brokenness for your life, but he has allowed it. You have decisions to make. In your brokenness, you can choose to make the brokenness your identity, or you can choose to make God your providence. Where you have need, are you willing today to receive God as the provider for your spaces of void. It's a question that Naomi had to ask herself. And still she chose to regard the, the
the God, the creator of the universe, as El Shaddai. So is it possible that our God is both able to allow catastrophe on our lives and still be good? And the answer is yes. And the same God that Naomi and Ruth believed in for their providence is the same God that we have to pray to today, friends. So I thank God that he allows us the opportunity to choose him. And with your eyes closed, I would just like to pray for all of us that we would come to know God in our spaces of pain, in our loss, in our longing, that we would still look to God as our provider. And if there's anyone in the room who would like to make a decision today to turn away from their emptiness and find their providence in God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would move inside of you and that you would make a decision today for Christ. You can only do it for yourself. We can't do it for you. There's no specific prayer that you can pray with me for you to change your life and for you to change your heart and for you to turn away from sin. You have to do that for yourself. But we are committed to walking that with you and loving you through it. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for Ruth's story. I thank you that we can still exegete this story thousands and thousands of years later, Father. We can comb through the story word for word. And though it's someone else's live experience, we still find value, Father. For those who are struggling now, Lord, in the situation that they're in, I pray, Father, that you would grant them your peace, that you would grant us your joy, that you would grant us your hope to know that we don't walk alone even in the valleys, that you are with us atop the mountain just as you are with us in the bottom, the depth of the valleys, my Lord. Give us strength today, Jesus, to walk with you another day. Let us win today. Tomorrow will have its own problems. Today, Lord, give us the strength to survive in you today. Give courage to the hearts in this room who have not yet made a decision for you. And Father, lead us to your cross that we would celebrate your resurrection day after day in our lives, in our hearts, Father, and that we would long to be together with brothers and sisters to make your name great and to lift praise and worship unto you, O Lord. Father, satisfy our hearts today with your presence. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. One Life Christian Church is located in Baldwin, New York. To find out more about the church, visit us at www.onelifeli.com.